The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Uh, next Saturday morning at 10 a.m., there will be a prep school meeting. And um, so if you have any questions about that, check with uh, Mark Friedrich. Also, Charlotte Pruitt has been accepted for membership in the church. And then those of you who are going to Israel, I've been wanting to have sort of an orientation meeting or a Q&A. And so let's have a meeting after Bible class Thursday night. And then we'll we'll kind of go through things you ought to take, things you shouldn't take, things you wish you could take, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, all those kinds of things. All right, before we get started in preparation for worship, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John one nine. I'm starting to. I found out the guys in the back are starting off recording putting on the Sunday morning recording with the opening prayer. And since when we look at Ephesians 5.18, which says to be filled with the Spirit, the following verses all talk about giving thanks and singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Since that incorporates all of worship, not just the teaching time, I've decided to move our time of uh, silent prayer and confession up to the very beginning. Make sure we're in fellowship at the start. That goes on the tape then right before they'll put it on anyway. I was always concerned about the fact that the tapers listening to it needed to have that right before the message. So that gets on there that way. So we're going to start having our time of silent prayer right at the beginning. So let's bow our heads together. Use your opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is for us to gather together to worship the living God that you have loved us from eternity past. You provided a perfect salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have provided a perfect spiritual life based upon the ministry of God the Holy Spirit during this church age. Father, we pray that as we worship you today through song, through giving, and through the study of your word, that our desire will be to glorify you, and that as we worship, you, your Holy Spirit will motivate us Encourage us, strengthen us as we desire to advance in our spiritual life and to glorify you in everything we think, say, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 25, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Our scripture reading this morning will continue to read in the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119 beginning in verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. So we read through the psalm. Note the contrast that we have between uh, priorities related to the world and priorities related to the love of, the, of God's Word. Beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 26, A Mighty Fortress.
God's grace provides everything for the believer. He takes care of us logistically in terms of all of our basic physical needs from food, shelter, and clothing to providing the Word of God to teach us so that we may be provided for in terms of our spiritual life. In response to God's grace and His goodness, Scripture says that we also worship the Lord through giving. Giving is based on grace. It is not based on some legislated system of required percentage amounts in order to meet some legalistic mandate, but it is a gift from the soul in gratitude, in grateful response to all that God has given to us. Therefore, giving is often a, a, a criteria, part of our gratitude criterion for understanding our own maturity, sort of a barometer. It's a responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church as well as missions. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Will the men come forward to take up the collection? Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're grateful for all that you provide for us, for uh, especially for living in this tremendous country and for the freedom that we have and for all those who are serving in the armed services who uh, put their lives on the line to preserve our freedoms. Father, we thank you for all that you provide for us, and these gifts are simply a, a token of our appreciation and gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, that's a great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a story behind it. it the text was written by a man named Robert Robinson, and he wrote it when he was a young man, and it's obvious that he understands the trends of his own sin nature and he wrote in there, in that last verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And uh, preceding that, he said the previous sentence said, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And he, he recognized that he had this trend in his sin nature to to go out on his own, and for many years after he wrote that in his 20s, he was away from the Lord and just lived a, a life like any unbeliever and followed the lust patterns of his sin nature. And it was when he was in his 40s, I believe, that he was in England and got on a chariot, and there was a young woman who, uh, not a chariot, but a carriage, and um, there was a young woman... See, there's some demon operating here, taking our words away from us. You know, just. <laughs> anyway, there was this young woman that got on the carriage with him and recognized him and said, Aren't you Robert Robinson? And he said, Yes, I am. He said, Oh, I have always loved that tremendous hymn that you wrote. It has meant so much to me, and I frequently sing it because it reminds me of how important it is to stay close to God and not to wander. And in their conversation, he was so touched. The Holy Spirit used that. He just broke down at a, you know, just an emotional breakdown because he was the, he had been, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit had really been dealing with him in discipline and he recognized that he wasn't the man that wrote that song anymore because of his spiritual uh, regression. And so that, what the Lord used that to challenge him to, uh, get his priorities right and get back with his spiritual life. So it's always interesting in some of these hymns to be aware of their background in the lives of the men that wrote that because often as we sing those words and we're aware of what they went through, then it has an added level of meaning and significance for us. Well, this morning we're going to deal with a passage that relates to that same theme of sticking close to the Lord and not wandering because there are indeed consequences to decisions that take us away from the Lord. Before we begin our study, let's bow our heads and just ask the guidance of the Lord as we focus on the Word. Let's pray. Father, as we tackle this important passage of Scripture this morning, we're confident that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us. 
Father, we pray that we might have our attention focused on what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, that we might have our volition challenged, the direction of our life challenged, our priorities challenged, because as the songwriter said, our hearts are prone to wander. And yet there are great rewards that you have in store for those who stick with the Word, who keep it as their priority, who advance to the high ground of spiritual maturity. Father, as we study these things, we pray that you would help us to understand them and see how these truths apply to our own lives and our own thinking, that we might glorify you in everything we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're down in verses 4 through 6 in this uh, fifth short evaluation report to the church at Sardis. The focus in these, in this section, this is really the incentive clause in this, uh, in this evaluation report. This is the challenge to the church to straighten out their problems. As I pointed out in the last few weeks as we studied this, this is one of the, one of two of the seven evaluation reports that no condem, condem, commendation No commendation is made. It's all condemnation. And then yet there is still a group, a small group, a uh, just a few, a small number within this congregation that have managed to resist the uh, herd instinct and the peer pressure of a uh, backslidden, spiritually regressive, worldly congregation and they have stuck with it. So there is an encouragement here not only to those few that have hung in there, but there is also clearly the incentive to the others to make a reverse in their negative course, to turn back to the Lord and go forward, that they might as well uh, reap the consequences, the positive consequences and the reward. What we're reminded of in these overcomer passages is that the decisions that we make today will determine who we are tomorrow, not just in time, but also in eternity. The decisions that you make today regarding the priority of the Word of God in your life and your ongoing daily relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ not only affects your capacity to enjoy life today, but it also will affect your role and, res- and your responsibilities in the coming kingdom during the millennial age when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom. Scripture clearly states that when he returns, th- those who are believers in this age return with him, and we will reign as priests and kings in that future millennial kingdom. We will have administrative responsibilities, as bad a word as it is, will be part of the bureaucracy. But it's a bureaucracy in a perfect government and a perfect administration. And we're the ones who will have those, that delegated responsibility to rule and reign with Christ. And our training ground is during this age, during this life. This is why we go through tests. This is why we get the opportunity to trust God in the midst of different pressure situations, the, uh, the whole test of making the, our relationship with God and His Word the highest priority in our life is all related to this preparation for a future kingdom. So we recognize that there are basically two crucial decisions that every one of us has to make. The first is really a one-time decision, and that is has to do with your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to do with determining your eternal destiny, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. And so the issue for every human being is, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to trust in Christ so that you can have eternal life and an eternal relationship with God, or are you going to trust in your own uh, religious Operations in your own works or just not trust at all. Scripture says that every human being is born under the condemnation of sin. That sin entered into human history when Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
When Adam disobeyed God by eating the fruit, then spiritual death entered into human history, and so all of Adam's descendants are born spiritually dead. This is known as the doctrine of original sin. And it is for Adam's sin that we are condemned, not our personal sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We are not sinners because we have committed personal sin. We are born fallen, guilty of Adam's original sin, and under the condemnation of eternal death. So the most important decision that we make regards that eternal destiny, trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and it's trusting in Him alone. It's not trusting in Him plus anything else, any sort of sacramental system or any sort of religious works or any sort of... uh, obedience or works or dedication or anything else on our part, it is realizing that the only thing that has any kind of merit for God is the work of Christ on the cross. And so we're trusting in that alone for our salvation. And the instant that we believe Jesus died on the cross for us, a number of things happen. The first thing that happens logically is that Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And when that happens, the instant that happens, God in his justice sees that perfect righteousness of Christ. And based on our possession of Christ's perfect righteousness, we are declared righteous. We are declared just. That's known as justification by faith alone. At that instant, all this occurs simultaneously, but there's a logical order. At that same instant, we are regenerated. We receive a new human spirit, a new capacity to have a relationship with God. We receive God's eternal life so that we will never die. We have eternal life. We can never lose that. That was our focus on last Sunday. We emphasized the fact that we have eternal security. Once we are saved, we're always saved. Once you receive that possession of Christ's perfect righteousness, it can never be taken from you. But another thing that happens at that instant is that we are adopted into God's royal family. We become a member of a new family. And once we enter into that family, there is there are certain expectations and obligations incumbent upon those family members. And you know what that's like because you grew up in a home where every now and then you did something that was uh, not acceptable to your parents, and, you, and your dad or your mom would say, now, nobody in this family does anything like that. It didn't mean that because you had done that you were excluded from the family, but it was a recognition that if you were in that family, if you were a member of that family, that there were certain responsibilities, there was a code of conduct and a behavior standard for someone who was a member of that family. And the same thing is true about the royal family of God. We've been adopted into God's family, and there is a code of conduct that God has established that dictates how members of the family should live. Now, we don't always live that way. Sometimes we violate that code of conduct, and that's called sin. And when we do that, we have a way of recovery, and that is simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and at that instant we're recovered, and that relationship within the family is restored. Now, while we're in God's royal family, we sometimes get a little upset with the fact that we're in that family. And there are folks that say, well, you know, I may be a member of the family of God, but I don't like all that stuff that I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to live life the way I want to live it. And these are rebellious believers who are out of fellowship, disobedient to God, and they live like they're part of another family. Of course, we know the Scripture says that you are a member of only one of two families. You're either a member of the royal family of God, or you are a member of Satan's family. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said when he addressed the Pharisees. So you've got one of two families, and each family has its own separate and distinct code of conduct. And so you end up with a lot of believers who act like they're still in the family they were born into, and they continue to act that way. And there is no obvious distinction between them and those who are in God's uh, royal family. 
So these are folks who renounce their family responsibilities and end up coming under divine discipline because God says that he's going to discipline any member of the family that is disobedient, according to Hebrews 12.7. And that's what we see going on in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse Verses 2 and 3. It is a reprimand, and we have gone through this in detail already. It is a reprimand with the solution included in the reprimand to these rebellious, disobedient, operationally dead believers in the church of Sardis. They are to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. For I have not found your works perfect. In other words, I have not found your words, your works complete. Before God, remember how you have received and heard. Now, that verse right there tells us that he's addressing believers. Now, the reason I'm making this point, I want you to keep this in mind, is that this morning we're looking at this, the incentive clause in the last three verses related to the overcomers. And there are many people who teach that an overcomer is a, is a synonym for anyone who is a believer. And I'll show you why they say that and why they misinterpret the Scriptures before we're done this morning. But there are many people who believe that. In fact, recently I was asked, when I got to this passage, to make sure I answered a couple of questions, clarified a couple of other verses related to the overcomer. But there are many folks who think, and many theologians and many pastors who teach, that if you're a believer, you're an overcomer, and an overcomer is a believer. And so uh, that, that would mean that if you're not an overcomer, then you were, you were never saved to begin with and that you don't have eternal life. And when we come to this verse in chapter 5, I mean uh, verse 5 of chapter 3, he who overcomes is talking about a specific group of believers in that church. It is not talking about the believer's Versus unbelievers, because if we read the context, he addresses the entire congregation as believers. That's why he can say, remember how you've received and heard. He's not saying you need to believe the gospel. See, if the issue were their salvation, he would be giving them the gospel. But the issue isn't their salvation. The issue is their obedience to the word and their spiritual growth. So the solution is not the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The solution is to remember how you began this, which is faith alone in Christ alone, and remember what you have heard, that is the teaching related to the spiritual life. Hold fast and repent. Repent is not a synonym for coming to salvation. Repent is the Greek word metanoeo, which means to change something. And every time you change from a status of disobedience to God to obedience, every time you confess your sin, that's repentance. That is change. And as we grow and mature as believers and we realize that there are areas in our life that need to conform to the pattern of God's expected behavior for the adopted child in the royal family of God, that's repentance. It's change. It's not emotion. It's not uh, walking an aisle. It's not uh, being overwhelmed by guilt. All those things are being overwhelmed by guilt sometimes might be present. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's an emotional element there. Just like when you were a kid and you got involved, and we all did this when we were kids. We got out of sorts with our parents, and we might go through a period of two or three days where we just got a little sassier, and we got a little grumpier, and finally one of our parents said, well, you're just gotten too full of yourself and it's time to deal with this and then we got a spanking or at least that's what happened in my family and then I straightened up so there was a a, a process there and then there was a, a discipline and then there was changed behavior that's what repentance is it's, it's, disi- it's changed behavior and sometimes I felt real sorry about it and sometimes I, I, there was a lot of emotion involved with that But it wasn't the emotion that was important. It was the change that was important. And I might get real emotional and be real upset and promise that, oh, yeah, I'll straighten up. You know, you you just put that belt away. And uh, we we don't need that. I'll straighten up. But there was a lot of emotion, but it wasn't the emotion that would produce 
the change. It was a decision that came as a result of that. So, you know, I'm not saying that emotion isn't there, but that's not the key element. The key element is change. And then there's a conclusion in verse 3. Therefore, if you won't watch, if you won't do what you're supposed to do to get back online, if you won't watch, then I will come as a thief. Now, this is not a this is a metaphor based on the concept of burglary. That you don't know when a thief is coming. Thieves usually come at night when you're asleep and you're not conscious, you're not awake, the lights aren't on, they can sneak in and they can surprise you. It's totally unexpected. They don't send you a telegram ahead of time or or I'll call you up first. It's it's something that's completely unexpected. So this metaphor of a thief or the simile of a thief coming uh, in the night is used to refer to the rapture in places. It's used to refer to other things. You have to look at the context. Just because it says, I will come upon you as a thief, doesn't mean it's talking about the rapture here. Remember, each of these letters is being written to a historical congregation, a real congregation made up of flesh and blood individuals who lived in Ephesus and in Smyrna and in Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis. And when it says, I, and whatever it says here applied directly to those individuals. Now, this church in Sardis disappeared about the 7th or 8th century A.D. There hasn't been a church in Sardis. There hasn't been a Sardis since then. So if this uh, statement, I will come upon you as a thief, is talking about the rapture, then somehow we've missed it because there ought to still be a congregation in Sardis waiting for Jesus to come at the rapture to take him. It's not that way. It is talking about... It's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the fact that if they don't straighten out, then God will come unexpectedly. The Lord Jesus Christ will come unexpectedly and bring judgment upon that congregation. He will discipline them and take care of the problem. And as we know, historically, that occurred and there is no longer a church in Sardis. So he is simply announcing the fact that as the Lord of the church... It is his responsibility to prune those branches in the illustration of John chapter 15. And if they don't straighten out, then the Lord Jesus Christ will come and do that. In contrast to the many in the congregation who are disobedient, operationally dead, the Lord recognizes that there are a few there that are not. In verse 4 he says, But... You have a few. Now, the but is there in the original. It's not in the King James or New King James, but it should be there. But you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Now, the word there, translated defiled, is a word that indicates ritual impurity. It has the, it's standing for sin. It's not talking about any particular kind of sin. It is talking about the fact that their garments there, the word there simply refers to uh, their, their spiritual life. And that there are those who have not defiled their garments. And defiling your garments is a description of people who are in ongoing carnality. They were living in disobedience to God, and they had not cleansed their life. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To katharizo, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the word cleansing or purification is in contrast in the scripture to defilement. Defilement is what occurs whenever we sin. So if we stay in sin for a long period of time, which is operational death, living in carnality for a long period of time, there has to be cleansing that's going on so that we can be restored to fellowship, recover the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and be restored to a positive spiritual growth. So these are those who haven't done that. They have defiled their garments. They're staying in a state of carnality. And in contrast, there are those who are constantly using 1 John 1, 9, staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, moving forward in their Christian life, and the promise is they will walk with me, that is, with the Lord Jesus Christ, in white 
for they are worthy. Now, that has to be understood along with the next verse, which adds to it. We have to take these verses together as an entire statement. And one of the problems I think that uh, people get into in interpreting these verses is they try to isolate each phrase from each, the preceding phrase or the following phrase. Verse 5 expands on what this means. We say, what does it mean they'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy? And the, the last phrase there emphasizes that the walking in white is related to their behavior. In other words, it's related to works, not grace. So right there we know this isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about the spiritual life because salvation is not based on works. Salvation is based on a free gift. But rewards are based on what we do with the things that God has provided for us for our spiritual life, what we do with those uh, spiritual assets. So some come to this passage and they try to make the walking in white analogous to receiving the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They'll go to passages like Zechariah 3 in the Old Testament where you see the imagery of, of, uh, of Joshua the high priest having his dirty garments taken off and having a white robe put on him. And say, see, that's what this is talking about. Well, that's a picture of salvation. There's one element there that is important, and that is that the white robe that Joshua the high priest has on is the same kind of garment we're talking about here. It is a priestly garment. So when we look at this passage and it talks about being robed in white, what this relates to is a priestly garb. Remember the promise is that we are going to come back to rule and reign with Christ as kings and priests. Okay? So this has to do with those robes of our office and our priestly office in the future millennial kingdom. Now, this walking with with Christ in white is is based on the behavior, the spiritual behavior and spiritual growth of the individual believer. If it is a worthy walk, then there are rewards. If it is not a worthy walk, there's no loss of salvation, but there is a loss of rewards. That's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Revelation 3.5 says, expands on this and says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So the one who walks with me in white is then defined in verse 5 as the overcomer. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. These white garments, as I said, indicate his priestly role and responsibilities. That is our role in the future millennial kingdom. So it is the overcomer believer, not the believer that is a failure indicated by the rest of that congregation, but those who stick with it, advance to maturity, the overcomers who participate in certain special privileges and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. So what does it mean to be an overcomer? Well, before we get there, we have to get back to one other key item for, for interpretation in verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, last time I addressed this issue of blotting out his name, because there are some folks who think that blotting out the name indicates a loss of salvation. I pointed out last time that runs contrary to Scripture, and we covered the doctrine of eternal security, that we can never lose our salvation, that once God does all those things he does at the instant of salvation, then that can never be reversed. It is permanent. We have a completely new status as justified human beings. So what does this mean, not blot out his name? Well, we have to understand it in terms of an understanding of what the book of life is, but we also have to understand it as part of a sentence. I won't blot out his name, but I will confess. We have to take those two phrases together to understand 
the import of what is said. It's not just the individual words that's important. It's how the whole thing comes together in a contextual sentence. Well, let's look at the book of life and what the scripture says about this idea of the book of life. Let's look at the last two or three uses of it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 is describing the last judgment in history. This is known as the great white throne judgment where God is on a great white throne and all the uh, unbelievers of human history are brought before that throne for a <coughs> their final evaluation. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books, plural, books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So you have one set of books, which is a recording of all the production of every human being. It records their works. That's good works, it's bad works. It doesn't distinguish here what between good and bad works. It just says all their works, all their production. Everything is there. And then there's another book, which is the book of life. The dead are judged according to their works. So what happens is God evaluates all their works and stacks it all up and says, do all your works, when we add and total the value of all your production up, does it equal the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because you can't come into heaven unless you possess perfect righteousness. Your sins might be paid for. Christ did that on the cross. But unless you receive the imputation of righteousness and eternal life where you're regenerated, you don't have salvation. It's not enough simply to have your sins paid for. Three things have to happen in order for you to be saved. First of all, the penalty has to be paid for. The sin has to be paid for. The second thing that happens is that you have to have your negative righteousness turned to perfect righteousness. The third thing that has to happen is that that's your, your spiritually dead condition has to be resolved by receiving a new spirit and being born again, which includes receive the reception of God's life, which is eternal life. So Christ paid the penalty for your sins. That takes care of the first part of the problem. He did that for everyone. But the reason it's not a universal salvation, the reason not everyone is saved, though their sins are paid for, is because the other two problems have to be dealt with. And that only comes as a result of the individual's Volition. He has to trust Christ, and then he receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness and is declared justified. And in trusting Christ, God then regenerates him and gives him eternal life. So that resolves this debate that's gone on for 500 years now over whether or not Christ died only for the elect or if he died for everybody. He died for everybody, but it's only a... But you're not saved unless you trust him and get the other two things, the other two problems resolved. So these are the dead unbelievers, and they're evaluated according to all their works, and everything's added up, and it doesn't come close to the perfect standard that God has established. So the book of life indicates those who are saved, those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, it doesn't matter how good your works are. If your name isn't in the book of life and it only gets there by trusting Christ as Savior, then you don't have eternal life. Revelation 21, 27 then goes on to say, But there shall, shall by no means, they shall by no means enter it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is talking about the New Jerusalem. So once again, the Lamb's book of life here refers to everyone who is a born-again believer and received the eternal life of God. Let's go back a couple of chapters. So there are some people who think that the book of life, when we look at 
trying to solve this problem of blotting out those whose names aren't written in the book of life, that what happened in eternity past is God wrote everybody's name, every human being's name gets written in the book of life. And then if you don't believe, your name gets blotted out. But that doesn't fit the other uses in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, 8, talking about the unbelievers in the tribulation period, says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, talking about the Antichrist. The phrase earth dwellers is a term that is used frequently and consistently in the book of Revelation to describe the unbelievers during the tribulation period. All the earth dwellers will worship him, that is the Antichrist, and these are those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. See, their names aren't there. It's not that their names were written there in eternity past and then they get blotted out when they die because they never trusted Christ. Because these people are still alive and they still have the potential of being saved during the tribulation. Their names were never written in the book of life and they are worshiping the Antichrist. So all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 17.8 The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. This is talking about the Antichrist. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Once again, these are the unbelievers that succumb to his deception. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So again, it indicates that their name weren't written in the book of life your name only gets written in the book of life when you trust Christ as your savior that's when you receive eternal life so we can't come back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 and say well blotting out of the book of life refers to those who just didn't accept God's plan of salvation what, to what does it refer well, we'll get there in just a minute. Let's back up and start at the beginning of the verse. We have to understand what an overcomer is. So you have to put, investigate each item in here, and then once we understand what it means, then we can put it together and we'll have a clear understanding of the verse. He who overcomes. Now, there are many folks, as I said earlier, who think that an overcomer equals a believer. Let's just look at the term. It's the participial form of the Greek nikao. Nikao is the verb related to the noun Nike, which has been anglicized to your footwear, Nike. This was the Greek goddess Nike, who was the goddess of victory. And so that was taken over by the uh, tennis shoe manufacturers to indicate that uh, if you wore their product, you would certainly have victory. But this is the idea. It means victory or success. The verb means to overpower, to gain victory, to win in a contest, to overcome challenges. So it has the idea of the victorious ones, those who are victorious in a contest. This is where we get the idea that you sing about in various different hymns, talking about victory in Jesus and the victorious Christian life. All that verbiage that we picked up in different... Uh, uh, different theological uh, groups all relate to this concept that comes from nikao, victory. We are to be victorious in the Christian life. But the very fact that we can be victorious does imply the fact that we may fail. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 said that he beat his body daily into submission to make sure that he would not be disqualified. Not that he would lose salvation, but a clear recognition that he, in running the race and entering the contest, he could fail. And not that he would lose his salvation, but he would lose the blessing and the rewards that would be his for being a victorious contestant in the spiritual life race. We have to remember when we study things like this that there are three phases to salvation. First phase is justification when we are freed from the penalty of sin. 
justification passages have to do with getting saved. And the solution there is not to, as it is expressed here, not to remember how you received and heard. The solution there is to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Phase two is the spiritual life when, by applying the Word of God, we become freed from the power of sin. And then phase three, glorified, we are freed from the presence of sin. Now, when we come to this question of identifying the overcomer, we have to recognize that there are these two views I've talked about. On the one hand, there are folks who think that every, every believer is an overcomer. If you're not an overcomer, you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, you're not an overcomer. And then the other view is, and this is the view that I believe the Scripture teaches, that only believers who are advancing in the Christian life are overcomer believers, that there are two classes of believers. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that describes the judgment seat of Christ, that at the judgment seat of Christ that there are those who receive gold, silver, and precious stones, and those whose works are, are wood, hay, and straw, and that's all burned up. And they enter heaven, they lose reward, the text says, and they enter heaven yet as through fire. So you have one group that is rewarded for their works because they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have another group that loses rewards, but they don't lose their salvation. So there's clearly two classes of believers. Now, the verse that people go to that causes some problem has to do with a statement made in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, which we'll look at in a second. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, the first thing I want to observe here is that this passage is talking about overcoming the world. That is not salvation. That is not what occurs at salvation. What occurs at salvation isn't an overcoming of the world. It is a, an acceptance of Christ's payment for our sin. That's different. You see, overcoming the world is a phase two issue. That's a spiritual life issue. That's not a phase one issue. And that is clear from passages such as Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to the world. See, Romans 12.2 isn't talking about receiving eternal life and getting into heaven. That was what Paul talked about back in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, those great chapters dealing with justification by faith alone. Romans 12.2 is the application of that in terms of the believer's post-salvation spiritual life. Don't be conformed to the world. This is the issue after salvation, not for salvation. So when we look at 1 John 5.4, we have to recognize that overcoming here deals with the object of the world, not overcoming sin, not overcoming spiritual death, but overcoming the world. Now, the problem is that we have this phraseology there at the beginning that makes it look like he's talking about regeneration. He says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, the faith that he's talking about there is not the faith in Christ for salvation, but it is post-salvation faith rest drill. That's how you overcome the world. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, the term born of God is a term that's a, it's a perfect tense of the, of the Greek verb ganao, which indicates a completed action in past time. And the emphasis in this verse is on the present results of a past action of be, being saved. John makes a number of statements similar to this in the Gospel of John that make it sound as if he's talking about salvation. But what he is talking about from John's perspective is he doesn't, he doesn't conceive of a, of a Christian who is living a disobedient life. He's, he's thinking only in terms of a Christian who is operating on those divine assets. Let me give you a couple of examples. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, that is, Christ is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, there are folks who will go there and say, See, you don't practice righteousness, so you weren't saved. First John 3, 9 is another verse. 
Whoever has been born of God does not sin. You sin. No, you weren't saved. See, if you, if you don't do in-depth work on how John uses these phrases in John's writings, if you're not a student of, of Johannine uh, style, you can easily misinterpret the verse because it's, he, it doesn't say what it appears to say superficially. See, this verse says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So that says, if you, the way a lot of people would see that at a surface level is if you've been regenerated, you can't sin. Uh-oh. What are we going to do now? We've all sinned. Does that mean we're not really saved? Well, maybe John's using this phrase a little differently than American evangelicalism normally uses a phrase. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But we certainly know those who are saved who don't love anybody. They're bitter and they're angry and they're resentful about things that have happened in life, and love doesn't really characterize them. How do we deal with all this? We have two conclusions. We can either conclude, as some do, that genuine born-again believers practice righteousness, don't sin, love everybody, and can't sin. In which case, nobody's going to get saved. Or, what John is saying is only a regenerate person can practice righteousness, not sin, love their brothers, but not all who are born again will practice righteousness, avoid sin, and love their brothers. See, what he is saying is only those who are born again can do these things. They might not, but they're the only ones who can do these things. That's the only logical conclusion we can come to. And in that, he is saying that only the regenerate can overcome the world. That's what 1 John 5, 4 says. Whatever is born of God, that is, only regenerate ones can overcome the world. But, you see, not all regenerate people overcome the world. See, if all regenerate people automatically overcome the world as part, as part of positional truth or even, or even experiential truth, then 1 John 2.15 would not make sense. 1 John 2.15 is a prohibition leveled at every born-again believer, and he's saying don't love the world. Now, if you're already saved and therefore you've overcome the world, why would he come back and say, now don't love the world? You've already overcome it, haven't you? No, you haven't. Overcoming the world is a post-salvation issue. That's what Romans 12.2 is all about. Don't love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Now, love of the Father is what's called a uh, uh, objective genitive. Objective genitive is a difficult grammatical term to understand. It's when you have a noun of action like love. See, love is a noun, but it describes an action. Love, which is a verb. And love, this could be taken as being either love for the Father or love from the Father. If it's love from the Father, that's called a subjective genitive. If it's love for the Father directed to the object of the Father, that's called an objective genitive. And that's what we're talking about here is if anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in him. In other words, when you're out of fellowship, you're loving the world. When you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, you're loving the Father. It's either one or the other. These are the contrasts. 1 John 2.16 goes on to say, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there is this contrast between the world and between the way the believer operates. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So we're talking about love for the Father. Now, the contrast is between the one who loves the world and the one who loves the Father. One or the other, they're mutually exclusive. It's related to 1 John 2, 3, which says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, that we keep His commandments. See, a lot of people think knowing Him means getting saved. You know, because we're so sloppy as evangelicals, we take 
biblical phrases and invest them with different meanings. So we say, do you know Jesus? Oh, you don't know Jesus, you're not saved. But see, that phrase, knowing Jesus, is never used as a statement of salvific relationship in the Bible. Let me give you an example. If you go to verse 4, 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him, it's a perfect tense of the verb to know, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, if you interpret this to say, well, John's talking about unbelievers. See, they don't know him, they don't keep his commandments, so you see, they're not saved. Well, the problem with this is in John 14, verse 9, you have the same terminology. In John 14, Jesus has already made it clear in John 13 that all the disciples are saved. All of you are clean except one. And that one was Judas, not Philip. But in John 14, 9, Jesus looks at Philip and he says, Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? Perfect tense of the same verb. So Philip is saved, but he doesn't know Jesus. Oh, yeah, he knew Jesus when he saw him down the street. He'd say, hey, there's Jesus. He recognized him. But he, he doesn't have that mature relationship. That's what knowing God is all about in these verses. It's like, by this we know that we have come to know him. It's that post-salvation process of spiritual life. It's not talking about entry into the life. It is talking about the ongoing experience of the life. How do you know that you're growing and maturing as a believer? Because you keep his commandments. You're obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey me. He doesn't say, if you love me, you take advantage of grace. He says, if you love me, you obey me. The one who says, I have come to know him, in other words, the one who says, I've grown and matured as a believer, and doesn't keep his commandments, that is, is disobedient, is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly matured. It's the process. It's not talking about getting saved. It's that your love for God matures as you grow. The love for God matures. And part of the love for God is what we see, or what we saw back in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, is it includes not not loving the world. So when we come back to 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, Overcoming the world in the context of John's usage can only refer to what happens after salvation, learning to conform your thinking to divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint. And the modus operandi, the mechanic, the the skill that enables you to do that is what? It's faith. It is trusting God in not the salvation promises, But the other promises that God gives in Scripture, and as we learn to walk by faith, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, we advance to maturity. That's an overcomer. Now, there's a problem. There's a problem that almost everybody brings up at some point. They say, well, that's all well and good, but you know, the word overcomer is used to refer to to all believers in Revelation chapter 21. Let me give you the, the skip ahead and I'll give you that verse. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. Revelation 21, 7 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Contrast. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, you got one group that ends up in the lake of fire, people say, and the other group has to end up in heaven. And so overcomers in Revelation 21.7 indicates those who are saved, right? Not if you understand the Greek. See, Revelation 21.7 and 8 isn't talking about getting eternal life. It's talking about inheritance. Note the word. He who overcomes shall inherit. And that's what we're talking about. The overcomer gets an inheritance. The non-overcomer at the judgment seat of Christ loses his reward. He doesn't get an inheritance. Now, the reason people get confused over this is because they see this contrast with this group of of obviously obvious sinners whose lives are completely characterized by 
the lust of the flesh, and it says they'll have their part in the lake of fire. And in English, we think of the word part as a role. Did you get that part in the play? Do you have that role? What part did you play in that, in that uh, uh, episode of that activity? Or what part did you play in uh, the, the collapse of Enron? You know, it's, it's, it, we think of it in terms of role. What role did you have to play there? But that's not what the underlying Greek word means. The underlying Greek word is the word miros. Miros. And the word miros is a word that is used in the... It's a technical legal term in, in Greek legal literature in wills. You know, the, the lexicons say in legal testamentary literature. Well, that's what it is. This is my last will and testament. Okay, it has to do with inheritance rights. This isn't talking, the word meros isn't talking about destiny and role, it's talking about inheritance rights. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their inheritance. In other words, their inheritance, their rewards, those rewards that they lost in 1 Corinthians 3, where do they end up? They end up in the lake of fire. It's not that they, the individual, ends up in the lake of fire. It's that their rewards end up in the lake of fire. They get, they get flushed into the lake of fire. And they enter heaven yet as through fire. Now, this passage relates to similar passages in Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that give a very similar grocery list of sins, saying that those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the common thread in all these passages? Inheritance, inheritance, inheritance. Inheritance is not entry into the kingdom. It is ownership in the kingdom. This was the same issue with Israel. Inheritance in the land was an entry in the land because not all who entered the land had an inheritance in the land. There's a difference between entry and inheritance. So there will be believers that enter heaven, enter the kingdom, but they won't have a possession or an inheritance in the kingdom because they lose rewards. They didn't go through the training process and they didn't overcome, so they're not qualified. They don't have the capacity to, to take on the responsibility of ruling and reigning as kings and priests. Now, are they going to be in heaven? Yes. Are they going to have a resurrection body? Yes. Are they going to be present? Yes. But they are not going to receive these rewards. So the Lord Jesus Christ offers this incentive. Remember, we have an eternal contract with an incentive clause. And the incentive clause is that the victorious believer shall be clothed in white garments. He's going to have a special clothing, a special uniform that marks him out as a believer who has been rewarded. And this white garment is like, the, it's the same word used of that garment, that, the, that white garment, that the robe that the Lord Jesus Christ wore in the vision in Revelation chapter 1. It's a priestly garment. And then the Lord says, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father who is in heaven. And this is what is known as a, a figure of speech known as litotes. A figure of speech known as litotes. Let me see if I, I don't have a slide on that. What is litotes? Litotes is a figure of speech where you understate something or state the opposite in order to emphasize a positive. You understate something or state the positive, the, the negative in order to reinforce and highlight the positive. It's not saying that there was a possibility that their name would be blotted out. It is simply stating in a very positive way, these overcomers are going to get white garments and they won't be blotted out There's, of, the, of the book of life. They're going to be in the book of life for sure and they're going to receive rewards. And the contrast to this isn't um, you know, loss of salvation, but adds on to it saying, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There's also a, a was a cultural analogy to this in that in the ancient world, every citizen, every citizen that was uh, born into a city had their name on the city roll. Those who contributed in a special way, those who through some sort of uh, uh, meritorious uh, endeavor had benefited the city, would have their name inscribed in gold. That's the idea that's going on behind this idea. By using this negative figure of speech, he's really reinforcing 
the positive. That not only is their name not going to be blotted out, but it's going to be confessed before God. It's going to be made. It's going to be mentioned in a very positive way, and it's going. They're going to be praised before, uh, before the Father and before His angels and before everyone. So it is not a statement indicating that a name could be blotted out, but it is simply understating the issue to highlight the positive that their name is not blotted out, but it is indeed confessed and proclaimed and praised before everybody. The two phrases must be understood as part of one sentence and not separated. And then the conclusion is, he who has an ear, let him hear. Don't just hear having that auditory nerve stimulated, but if you are positive to the word, then you need to respond and recognize that you need to be one of those overcomers. You need to make sure that the study of the Word of God is a priority in your life, not just Sunday, not just Tuesday, not just Thursday, day in, day out, because we are in training today. We are in preparation. This spiritual life today is preparing us for our roles and responsibilities in the coming kingdom. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the challenge that is presented to us in each of these letters, to be overcomers, that there are special rewards, special privileges for believers who advance in maturity, for believers who are faithful, for believers who stick with the Word, for believers who have their uh, skills, their spiritual life trained for discernment, that we may be able to rule and reign with you in the coming kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is not based on who you are, what you've done. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And he offers you eternal life. He offers you salvation. All you have to do is trust in him, trust only in him, and you will have eternal life. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. The issue is simple. All you have to do is trust in Him. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today, that the Holy Spirit would continue to bring them to our remembrance, and that that would be used by you to motivate us, to challenge us. As we move forward in the Christian life, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.